The Green Chair is brought to you by you for you. To support The Green Chair, please visit our website and purchase a lip balm at thegreenchair.com.au. The Green Chair would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we have recorded this podcast and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The Green Chair is produced on Wiradjuri Country. Welcome to the second episode of The Green Chair. I am your host, Denny Maidens, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode. The Green Chair is an inclusive space for regional women to connect, collaborate, and interact with one another in a supportive environment. At The Green Chair, we believe connection, collaboration, and inclusion are essential, sharing the good, bad, and the ugly. In this week's episode, our second, I speak with Monique Mathis a psychologist who is based in Dubbo. Before starting this episode, I would like to provide a disclaimer. Mental health is the topic of this piece and it may be confronting for some people. Monique has worked with some of Australia's most vulnerable people and the services that she and her team provide to the region are essential. So let's jump in. All right. (laughs) All right. Could you give us an overview of yourself? Okay, I am 39. I've been a psychologist for 16 years. I'm married with two kids. I own Mind Cookie Psychology in Dubbo. You're not from Dubbo? No, no. So I was born in Wollongong, raised in Queensland in a little regional town called Maryborough where um, I met my husband. We've worked up and down the coast. We were originally in Sydney, the lovely Surrey Hills in Sydney before coming out to Dubbo, which I did uh, for a job opportunity with juvenile justice. So I stayed with them for four years, did another job with an NGO, working with parents who abuse and neglect their children. And then two years ago, last month, um, I opened Mind Cookie. Yeah. So came to Dubbo for that job and then saw obviously (coughs) a market for needing private psychology yes so i was working in a like a clinical consulting role i was supporting like the assistant managers and the case workers who work with obviously at-risk young people and i would do that from wagga griffith albury all the way out to broken hill and our bathurst orange office and here in dubbo so for me it was a lot of travel and having a young family it didn't kind of pan out too much and then I moved into MST which was a intensive family therapy based in the home for parents who were at risk of losing their children due to abuse and neglect so we worked around the clock we were 24 hours a day seven days a week a lovely little team unfortunately while it's a great model there wasn't a lot of services available to support us so we were everything to everyone which was hard and once again having a young family got a bit too much but the reason I actually moved into opening Mind Cookie was psychology particularly interns so provisional psychs they're a heavily exploited group and we also don't have a lot of places for them to safely practice generally let alone regionally so I have been a board certified psych supervisor for probably about seven years now my own internship was a horrific experience where I was often left to my own devices and I did that in a maximum security jail in Queensland so not exactly the easiest start to psych and that's kind of what got me into being a supervisor is wanting to provide that kind of safe and supportive environment where they're actually paid properly and they're provided with supervision that we're required to give them, but they didn't have to pay for it themselves and a nice kind of integrated start to their career. I just don't, again, obviously it takes a very strong 
person to be able to do what it is you do and then to come from dealing with children and families that it's not necessarily the greatest experience or yeah it was a sink or swim kind of environment I've always worked in crisis um, type work so like I said started my career in a maximum security jail I very vividly remember my first person I interviewed who had a half face tattoo and was there for attempted murder um wow and yeah, a few stories of being locked in rooms and things like that and being part of a riot and you know all the lovely uh you know, all the things we can romanticise about our job, but it was really hard and very understaffed, underpaid. We were, at sometimes you feel like you're a token gesture to the community because we were we struggled to be able to provide the rehabilitation programs that we know work. So very disillusioned, moved into a research role for a while, but that was with juveniles and that's how I kind of started in juvenile justice. I'd also done crisis mental health, so an inbound call service which is really hard because the people who are calling at 2am aren't your run-of-the-mill people they're highly distressed in a lot of trouble and you're on the phone so it makes it much harder than face-to-face stuff so moving into private practice a lot of my friends were joking about me just dealing with the worried wells of the world which lasted a hot second I spend most of my time working with both adults and adolescents where there's complex trauma sexual assault personality disorders eating disorders and things like that so how do you not take that on board I think I do sometimes there are quite a number of clients who like my heart breaks for unlike my previous roles in private practice we actually get to see the wins like corrections and juvenile justice and crisis mental health, you often only see clients when they come back, which means something's gone wrong. And when they go off and live their life as they should, you never see them again. So you don't get to be part of that journey. In private practice, it's the little wins. Knowing that from a collaborative perspective, you've helped a client, that's what gets you through. I think it just takes a very special person to do it. Like I think the same of like nurses and things like that, that I know that I couldn't do that and I'd get so emotionally connected to people is just it's mind-boggling for me that you can go out and do that every day and just some days it's hard but like we've got I've got a good team here and there'll be certain clients that the girls know that I'm going to come out and sit in the lunchroom and it's going to be like a very animated debrief I also make sure I have my own clinical support so I have two very good clinical supervisors that I see on like a six weekly eight weekly basis that's just because in private practice it can be quite isolating as well we're not working in a big team and we also have like a multidisciplinary connections around town so we will talk and discuss different clients and things like that it has its moments and I have a you know a partner who's not in the industry sometimes there are parts of this that are really hard for him to understand he works with you know builders and project managers and his boss so but you know we've been together for a long time he knows how to kind of deal with that and he you know learned very quickly to ask do you want a vent or do you want a solution because often there isn't a solution for what I'm coming home with so he's learned because you get to see a side I think of society and an insight to people in general that a lot of people don't get to see whilst very very fascinating I can just imagine again like it'd be very sad and all those things I just takes a very very special individual to do this what really got me was like obviously coming from a very marginalized clientele at risk offenses and things like that we kind of get used to to seeing and hearing those stories what I was really surprised about moving into private practice was how 
everyday people are struggling and how much they carry without anyone having any idea. So probably about half of my clients, their closest family friends wouldn't know they're seeing a psychologist and I think that's incredibly sad, mainly because, you know, as a psychologist I can only provide so much. I see clients maybe 50 minutes every three weeks. So when their closest support for whatever reason doesn't know, it's like we do a lot of skill building, but that organic support network needs to be available. Like my entire job is for people to not need me at some point. Like that's, I'm trying to skill people out of needing a psychologist. And that's really hard to do if there's no one else to replace the support I provide. Do you think there's still the stigma around people seeing a psychologist and mental health in general? Very much so. Got a lot of awareness programs going and and things like that. And I would love, I'm very much a research orientated person. I'd love to see what that has done for for the stigma and how people are accessing help and things like that. But we've still got a long way to go. Like it is still very much treated like even the way we use language, like I'm still hearing things like nervous breakdown and manic depressive and things like that. And they're languages that we haven't used for like at least in the industry since the 70s. It's a very slow moving beast. I recently spoke about the Are You Okay Day, which I think is a fantastic incentive. But the problem is people aren't okay. And what do you do then? Like sometimes you have one shot at someone getting support and if you're not geared for the answer to be no, it can be a really horrible experience for both people in terms of the person who asked and the person who isn't. As an average person, you don't really think of it like that as if if someone actually said, no, I'm not okay, what do you do about that? As far as my role in, in the stigma is I often tell my clients you know, that I personally see a psychologist myself. I have done for on and off most of my life. And it's not, some of them take it as in a, it's hard for me to deal with people, um, but it's not, we've all got our own stuff. And I think it's it's professionally responsible that I, I keep tabs on what's going on for me. It's the same reason we go for checkups, same reason we have dental checkups, the same reason we go to our GPs for bloods. Like mental health is just as much preventative as every other health industry. So I have clients who will come to me once every six months, 12 months for what we kind of call a mental health tune-up, which I try to encourage. I work very collaboratively with clients and I'm very open about the fact that the whole point of my job is to not exist anymore. And, you know, I'm hoping that that goes a reasonable way in, in breaking down that stigma. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think everybody, to be honest, should see somebody. And I think it doesn't matter if you're talking about you know, actual things that are going on or you're talking about your day. I think yep. it's just nice to talk to someone who isn't invested in your life. Yep. It's a third person. I just think it's beneficial for everybody. It might have one experience where they see somebody and they don't connect with them and it's like completely off yep. it, never going to see oh, anyone. That, it's genuinely part of my kind of first uh, session preamble with clients is, I'm very much aware not every client and psychologist get along and that is completely fine. You don't like every person you bump into. What I hate hearing is, yeah, they've seen one person, they didn't click, so that person's never gone back to therapy. I'm like, that that psychologist is mostly unaffected by that, but now you've had to live with whatever that problem is. So I always say to clients, if something isn't working, come to me, say something. Mm. If it's I've done something wrong, tell me. If it's something I can't fix, I will actually spend the next like session we have finding them a better fit because my priority is their mental health and their well-being, whether that's with my service, with me or with someone else. I don't care as long as they're being supported. Like I spoke to someone recently and they said that they didn't connect with the one that they saw and I was just, it was quite interesting because 
you know, I've seen somebody on and off for forever because I think it's really important. And I was just, that one experience has affected their whole outlook on it. And I was just, there's a GP I might not like. It doesn't mean I go back to them again. It's really hard and trying to get that point. Like I, you know, I don't take myself too seriously. And I often tell them I started my career in a maximum security jail. There is nothing they can say to my face that probably hasn't already been said. (laughs) Like I'm a big girl. They're not going to hurt my feelings. And I I said the one thing they can, the, the worst thing they can do is avoid the sessions. Like if it's, if it's truly something's gone wrong, let me help yeah even if that means you never come back here that's also okay because at the end of the day it's their mental health is our priority and it doesn't matter who they're seeing as long as it works for them there's still obviously that very much that stigma of i've noticed if i talk about those things to people it's sort of like i can't believe you're actually saying this out loud in like a public area and i just i find it quite mind-boggling still Mm. but yeah, like I even think of like my family and things like that and they – it's like we don't talk about that time, about whoever yeah. it was because, you know – They were having a, a time. They were having a moment yeah. and we don't talk about that because, yeah. you know, that didn't really happen maybe. Yeah. And it's um, – And it, I yeah. like I personally find it very fascinating because, well, like you mentioned nurses before, I, I think I'm the first in five generations of my family that's not a nurse. So I've grown up around nurses in nurses, like attending nurses' Christmas parties, which is off the chain. (laughs) Um, I've grown up around hospitals and things like that. So for me, nothing has really been filtered. So as a result, I forget that not everyone has the same information or has the same outlook in the sense that I will talk about everything and anything. Nothing to me is off limits, which I think really helps in the role I'm in because I do have clients who live in a kind of marginalized um, part of society sometimes and you know I've got it's really good when talking to you know queer teens or or someone who's going through you know a, a change of life that's involving a different lifestyle and things like that so the fact that I will have a discussion without even rationalizing that this might not be something the wider community is okay with, I think really helps the clients. But the problem is then I don't realize that like some of these topics are still heavily hush-hush and taboo. So Mm. I'm out there in public just chatting away like nothing's going on. So just I find it really funny. It's like even like small things of like when I was in my previous job and people would come in and not want to speak to me because I was a woman Mm. or the racism and some things like that. And it was just quite odd for me because I was like, I thought we'd been past this for a long time. And I was like, oh, obviously in my bubble or whatever else, this is still happening. Yeah, I had a case like that. So uh, a close girlfriend of mine who we went to uni together, we worked in one of the jails together. She was over in Scotland and sends me a message to let me know her and her partner were getting engaged and or had gotten engaged. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. This was, say, probably about 10 years ago. And I'm like, are you coming home to get married or are you getting married in Scotland? And she goes, well, given that gay marriage is not legalised in Australia yet, I think we'll be getting married here. And I'd completely forgotten. Like I was in my own little bubble where, you know, two people who love each other could get married. I had completely forgotten that, you know, it, to me, it was just my friend and her partner were getting married. But, yeah, she was – I was like, oh, yeah, whoops. <laughs> so they got married over there, which unfortunately meant I couldn't be there because of travelling costs and things like that. But they, you know, once Australia sorted their shit out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny. In some things, we're so behind and then some things we have the perception that we're ahead of things. I just – I, again, my brain just can't keep up with those things because I just don't view things yeah. like that. So I think maybe people have caught up and then they haven't. haven't. 
And and it can be in the same sentence, like especially with mental health. You can hear someone make like a very, you know, profound and very open comment and then in the same sentence say something that just puts us back 50 years and it's like, okay, this is great. I I really do now that you've mentioned before we press the magic button of why you became a psychologist. Now I really want to know this now. (laughs) I tell a lot of people that my entire career and life is fueled on spite, um, which is a very horrible thing to say as a psychologist. So from probably about eight, I was going to be a pilot. I, in the Air Force, I was live, breathe, everything. I had my pilot's license. I had my gun license. I was uh, I was with the Air Training Corps. I was a cadet. I did that from, I think, uh, 12 to 17. I reached the like rank of sergeant. I was in all their bivouacs. I led, you know, flights. I did all that. You know, I spent most of my time in the bush on, like, navigation bivs and survival bivs, and that was me. I lived, breathed that. I was going to the Air Force through the de- uh, the Defence Force Academy. I landed myself at 17 in Brisbane, which is a um, city I'd never been to by myself, for a full day of testing. And part of that testing, we got lumped with a psychologist. Now, I can't speak for the military on their plans here, but he was military. He was not military listed. He was contracted, so he was technically a civilian. And weirdly, all the girls ended up with him. And so I don't know if it was a case of he was allowed to say things that the other guys weren't. I don't know what the story was there or whether it was just pure coincidence. We were booked in, I think, for an hour, hour and a half, and about the 40-minute mark. Oh, actually, sorry, he um, asked me questions now looking back on that were quite odd in the sense that he started talking about chocolate and having like his wife having a chocolate addiction and and then out of nowhere asked me if I thought about suicide I when I was younger my sister passed away and that was on my aptitude history so they had information about that he really wanted to talk about that I didn't he got the shits about me just letting that go I was calm cool and collected I was not problematic I was not upset it just wasn't up for discussion And there was a lot of back and forth about really odd questions like asking me how I felt about taking orders, which makes sense, and specifically about the potential of having to kill someone and things like that. And then at about the 40-minute mark, he just stood up, flung open the door and told me to get out. There was no point continuing the interview. So here I am at 17 thinking I have just ruined my entire life because that's what 17-year-olds think. And I'm shoved back out into the bullpen with all the other candidates. And then the next call up I got was for the doctor and I flat out refused to do anything, which in hindsight's not good, until I knew what he'd said. So the doctor actually went and got my file and come back and in the end he had highly recommended me. He'd said I was quite resilient and things like that, which was all lovely. But I just thought it was the dumbest way to ascertain that. And you know, I sat through another couple of hours of of testing and in the end didn't actually get offered a a pilot or a navigator role and then went home obviously upset because they'd kept us for 12 hours. So I'd missed my plane home and I didn't have a train until midnight and went home and there was a lot of turmoil and arguing. My parents wanted me to go general entry. I didn't want to. I wanted to go in, get a degree, come out as an officer. And I just, after that experience, wanted nothing to do with the military. After a lot of arguing with my parents like well what are you gonna do and I'm like there were some swearing and I'm like I'm gonna be a psychologist because clearly I could do a better job than that guy and here I am 22 years later because I thought I could do a better job I couldn't even spell psychologist when I applied for it at uni so yeah that's uh that's how I ended up here 
there have been moments where I'm like, I need to go do something else. But uh, the good thing with psychology is it is so varied. It's in almost every available industry has something to do with psychology. So I've never had to leave the profession. I'd like to think I'm quite good at what I do. And I'd like to think I did a damn better job than that guy did. Um, But yeah, it was literally because at 17, I thought I could do a better job than someone. That just makes no sense to me. Get out. Like, just... Yeah, what you, I, I, I presume there was some like game playing yeah. there just to see responses and stuff like that. And like from a, you know, a more educated position, I could see potentially what he was trying to do. But also from an educated position, I could see how that could have gone really bad. Yeah. Like he pushed a lot of buttons, which if, and I understand they have to, but there are other ways to put people in those situations that are going to create a response that they need to see. Yeah. So uh, there was a lot of questionable things that come out of that for me and I don't know whether that is because at 17 there's a lot of angsty there and things are often bigger than Ben-Hur sometimes or whether it was just he was having a bad day, <laughs> we all do. Uh, that, that's how I ended up here. It's just quite an odd way to go about with a 17-year-old. Yeah. Like I can't imagine saying that to a 17-year-old. Like maybe I could play that mind game with like a 30-year-old, but 17, Mm. I don't know. Yeah, and like, you know, on reflection for me, especially being in the industry, something, the way that he went about and asked the risk questions I find now because I ask them day in, day out, very, very odd. Personally don't practice in a way that I'd hope to trip someone up and have them accidentally disclose that they've thought about hurting themselves. It's a question I ask quite openly to all my clients and I explain the reason why and I'm also not surprised by people's answers. Like this is part of the stigma. As a functioning adult, like weighing up the option of suicide is an option. It's not a great option, but it is an option. And there is a very big difference between the passive, I don't want to be here or I don't want to do this and actively planning. And I think this is part of that stigma side of things. We shouldn't have to trap people into accidentally telling us like this should be an open conversation. Probably one of the best things to happen recently has been there's a a song called Numb Little Bug that has been released. And one of the lines is basically not wanting to die but not wanting to be here. When you're not really happy but you don't want to die. And I think that's like a really like that song was is that kind of middle of the road where things aren't great. Yeah. I'm okay or I'm struggling, but I'm okay. Mm. And I think these are the conversations we need to be having. Like uh, my view on risk has always been very much the same. Most of it's manageable, but we're also supposed to be working once again collaboratively with a client. We can't trip them up. And I've been in therapy sessions where I've said things that I wasn't intending to say, and you then think about it the entire week or the entire two, three weeks until your next session. And that's not how I want clients leaving with some very, very big information. So no, he really, um, he put me through my paces and I guess in a way I have to thank him for being the way he was. Otherwise I wouldn't be here. <laughs> there are moments where I'm like, oh, I should have taken the armory engineer position they offered me, but they're few and far between. It's just, it's really fascinating. And then I guess from an outsider who doesn't deal with this, what does your day look like? now in private practice there's what my day says in my calendar so i because obviously my priority is skilling up provisional psychs so i have a whole day set aside for supervision meetings and things like that to make sure the girls are provided with the right support and it's normally done on a monday to kind of help them plan their clinical week 
I have three, sometimes four full clinical days myself where I'll see anywhere from five to seven people. I have very much a to the girls, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, because, you know, I have worked my way up to seeing average five, six people. Seven is a lot. I've heard private practice psychs doing eight plus, and that is insane. But I also understand the pressure of why we're doing that. It's because particularly out this way, services are limited. So yes, so my clinical days are, are, you know, sessions. One thing people often don't realize is yes, you have the hour, but technically sessions are 50 minutes. And in that 10 minutes, between there's a lot of jokes there's plenty of memes on social media about what we do in those 10 minutes and it it goes from having our bajillionth coffee for the day peeing eating crying prepping for the next session frantically writing our notes from the last session and we cram all that in 10 minutes so yeah that's that's normally like out my clinical day wednesdays are in theory all business um and yes, so for me, that's a lot of trying to manage my own disorganization with time and kind of cram everything in and make sure, you know, the business is doing what it's supposed to do from a business hat, which is uh, that for me is probably the biggest challenge. Like the clinical side of things, I've done it day in, day out for years. Business is a new kettle of fish and I... You know, I farm out to the people who do their thing mostly. I have a bookkeeper who I'm convinced hates me um, <laughs> because I never get anything to him on time. I have an accountant. I have the guys who do my website for me. Um, obviously, I have Kylie, who is our lovely practice, make everything happen here. Mans the phones, books in people, chases things up, keeps me on track. That's my work week. Occasionally, I do a Saturday. That's a lot. And I guess it's very hard to get services mm. in the regions. That would be, I guess, why especially people would try to fit more people in or yep. do those sort of things because there isn't any. And then if people are struggling and yep. need help, it's you have that inside you that you want to help yep. people and yep. that whole thing. And it's Yeah, and that's, you know, being out here, I'm acutely aware of the limited services and, you know, where the good thing with, most of the psychologists in town is we most of us know each other so we know who does what who is like who might have space who who is the better fit so there's often a lot of cross referrals so we'll email out and see who's available it's a novel experience because my experience in uni was psychology is not necessarily very collegial I don't know if that was just the university I was at but it's a lot of we know the postgraduate degrees are heavily competitive so I don't know if it's like borderline animosity starts very early. So it's really good to see that in actual practice, particularly in a regional town, it's not like that. We, you know, we have a couple of deals. Well, they're not really deals. <laughs> um, I like there's another practice here in town that does the secondary supervision for both my uh, provisional psychs and they'll go over and do some work for them as part of their supervision. They'll take our assessment clients, we'll take some of their therapy clients. And so it's a really good way of working Um building on other professional strength but yeah it, there's nothing in town no. most sites their books are if not closed they're months and months down the track and unfortunately with mental health you need to strike while the iron's hot particularly if you're having someone help seeking for the first time if they go to everyone and no one's available they're probably not going to go looking again and where there is significant risks involved that it can be a fatal outcome which is hard and it's that weird kind of I personally can't take that on because it is, you know, that's a heavy 
bed a burden to carry, but also it is the reason why I do my job and it's the reason why I have this practice is to hopefully get more services out here. Hmm. So, yeah. So do you guys work closely with psychiatrists as well? Uh, if we could find some, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the problem obviously once again out here is we have one psychiatrist that's yeah. available privately. With My understanding is with the public system there's been a recent shuffle and a shift so that I think the hospital's actually lost one of their psychiatrists for what reason I'm not too sure. But also a lot of them are visiting on a rotation so it would be great to have the relationship we do which is one thing we do miss not being a multidisciplinary team but we do with what we can (laughs) so it's we know who's in town we know some of the specialties they have but even they're overstretched so one of the I think they're with the mental health team at the moment they have a like a fantastic psychiatrist who specializes in eating disorders but my understanding is in a like a clinical coordination role at the moment so then themselves are stretched between like administration consulting and actually client work which makes it really really hard to get people in constant loop isn't it that if there's no one available you can't get support it's just this constant cycle probably the one thing that i i think COVID has definitely helped with that is the telehealth side of things personally i'm not a fan (laughs) i don't like seeing my clients via telehealth if i can avoid it but that's not always the case and so being able to provide support and assistance in a different way is great but the good thing is with psychiatrists it means that everybody in Australia is available there's some fantastic services at the moment which means you can consult with the psychiatrist in Melbourne Brisbane Sydney and things like that without having to travel it's an advantage still two three months wait list on that as well so and it's very expensive at times. Yes. yes. Yeah. And now that Medi- I think Medicare, like that's another problem with services is, you know, for a generally registered or clinically registered psychologist, you could be looking anywhere between $200 and $300 a session and you get like with a general registered psych, you get I think $89 back. With a clinical psych, I think it's $124. So it doesn't make services available to everyone, which is hard privately. But, you know, as a business perspective, it's to bulk is a unsustainable model so it's trying to find that happy medium trying to be flexible about the way you offer services for clients that's going to make it feasible yeah you know and yes there are people will often say yes there are bulk billing services available there are they don't operate all the time they're booked out solid they're not available regionally and there is a lot of barriers to mental health unfortunately which if you're functioning and well, some of those barriers you can navigate. If you are not, which is normally when you're reaching out for help, they are near impossible. Like there have been times where I've been so frustrated and bogged down that I've given up on things like that because it's just like, it's just too hard. I can't. Unfortunately, the Medicare side of things, like the call I took just before we started was a client needed a re-referral and tried to explain what that meant to the GP in terms of what sessions she needed and the GP didn't understand or couldn't work it out. And And so then you've got a client paying for a GP to get a new referral that they don't get or it's not valid. Unfortunately, Medicare provide a lot of the updated mental health care plan requirement information to psychologists. Psychologists aren't the ones that write the mental health care plans. It's the GPs. So, you know, we had a moment probably about, I'd say about 18 months ago, it feels like time's not real 
at the moment where in order for the uh, referral to be valid, it had to have how many sessions on it and yeah. it had to be correct. So what people don't realize is you get a referral for six sessions, then you go back and get a re-referral for four sessions and we currently have the COVID-10. So that's three referrals with three different numbers on it. Also, you can get 20 sessions a year. Once again, they tell us that, but not the GPs. So like our admin team would spend so much time liaising with GPs who just didn't understand what we were asking. So in the end, we ended up creating a performer that would say that and all they had to do was sign it. But that's a lot of wasted hours on our behalf and sometimes clients were then missing out on rebates, which once again puts the financial pressure on mental health services. Yeah, and then trying to get an appointment with a GP so you can even get that. And then it's like, well, do you just give up and just not worry about it? And I've been guilty of that. So starting with a new psychologist, they've said like, oh, are you Medicare? And I said, no, I'll go private. It's fine. Like one, also I know it saves him having to write reports to Medicare and to the GP and saves me having to go back every couple of months to get a new referral. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I'm doing the exact same thing because it's just not worth it. Yeah. I can't get in. What would you say to a woman who is struggling to find her place? Oh, that's a good one. As a woman who struggles to find her place herself constantly and forever, I'd love to say, I'd like to give all the advice that I don't take myself. Like things like being gentle on yourself. We are our own worst critic. Like I frequently say to clients, like, when was the last time you thought about someone making a mistake for more than two seconds? But we will lament on a mistake that we made in grade two forever at 3 a.m. when we've got to be up in an hour. Being gentle on ourselves, I think, is is a, a big thing. But also I think one thing that's good for women, probably everyone to know, is our place doesn't have to look the same. So my family, personally, we're about to embark on what would be considered very non-traditional. My husband has recently, air quotes here, he says retired. At 39, it's quitting, Danny. Um <laughs> Because we have two school-aged children and me running a business and him working full-time is just not feasible. We are doing two things poorly, parenting and working. Um, So he's taking a step back from his own career to do the homework, deal with the house, cook as a way of just giving me a chance to to do what I need to do and making sure that, you know, our house, otherwise our children are fulfilled, looked after, and it means – The good thing for me is it means when I go home, the time I'm spending with my kids is quality. It's not me yelling about homework or wondering what's for dinner and things like that. So everybody's place doesn't need to be the same. Like if we'd mentioned this in, you know, 50 odd years ago, this would have been appalling. I joke about him being my trophy husband and I'm going to buy him (laughs) a new pair of Converse every month. Um, And I bought him a, a set of golf clubs as his retirement gift. So like, your place doesn't need to be the same as the person next to you. And I think we spend a lot of time hanging on to ideals that don't suit us because we think we have to. Don't get me wrong, it's very scary. And, you know, as a chronic overthinker and warrior, I I can see all the ways this could go potentially bad. But trying to put that aside and, and just think, okay, what's the good in this? And also the best thing is it's it's an ideal we don't have to hang on to permanently. We get a few months in and decide this isn't for us we can change that. We don't have to sit in the situation for too long if it's not working. And I think that's good to know because I think we think everything is forever. We yeah. make this decision. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to live with this for the rest yeah. of my life. It's like, yeah. 
if it doesn't work out, we can yeah. figure something else out. Yeah. And we do. We, we spend like when we made the decision to move out here, it was a case of like I, we were hanging on to paying obscene amounts of rent in a place that didn't work. I couldn't go back to work more than three days a week because it meant that I was actually paying to be at work because of childcare. My daughter at the time, who was 18 months, had never actually walked on grass barefoot because there was no way I was letting that happen where we lived. And so we were just desperately hanging on to something that wasn't working. And then we're like, oh, granted, Dubbo was our three to five year plan and we've been here for eight years now um, <laughs> nine I think actually so you know you can change things mm. and you don't have to hang on to things that you think you need to or because you've made that decision sometimes it is about you know we hang on to things as a way of saving face because we know we stuffed up and I think it's a bigger and sometimes harder fact to face that we stuffed up and we want to change it you know knowing your place having a place just being comfortable and gentle with yourself and, and doing Doing what feels right at the time, I guess. I'm going to have two more for you because yep. I think we've calculated a lot and I know you're a busy person. What do you believe is the biggest hurdle for women in regional Australia? I would say like, and it's kind of on brand, access to services and whatever those services look like, like it doesn't, I'm not just talking mental health. Like we have quite a number of women who come see us where there's, you know, endo and gyno and fertility and things like that. And and just trying to access them or be heard, I think is, is really hard. I, I think that's probably the biggest thing is just, and that's everyone. But women especially because, you know, with the, like I said, endo, fertility treatments, we've got women travelling seven, eight hours to see different specialists and things like that. And they've got to do that on a revolving rotation while also having family and work and, yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Being everything to everyone. (laughs) It's a hard juggle. I don't know how we all try to do it. (laughs) We're all quietly smiling and nodding. Yeah, yeah, and not sleeping. Yep. Yeah, and not sleeping. And then my last one for you, how can women better support one another? I think we very, very unofficially, we just need to cut the crap. I have the the odd experience every now and then with uh, parents, women particularly. I will give where I've asked permission that they're okay for that feedback a very... <laughs> unpolished version of of parenthood i was lucky enough to have a friend who had it was very open with talking about her birth which did not go well Uh, a lot of uh, trauma a lot of unnecessary interventions thankfully both her and bub were fine which you know everyone goes oh that's the main point Mm, no it is it's great but we have to acknowledge what women experience and how that can shift and change things so often i will give very open views in terms of children and work and what it's like you know telling parents that they (laughs) we don't need to know what we're doing none of us do we stay one step ahead of the kid or fake it it's fine i think is really really important because if we keep telling women particularly you know you have your baby and there's this glowing thing and it's everything you're ever going to be and it's amazing and that woman doesn't feel that she thinks something's wrong with her not that you've potentially built it up to something else. I've had these conversations with friends, with clients. It's, you know, it's a very real look. It's cut the crap, I'm struggling. And I have. And having those real conversations, I think, goes a long way to just making women feel okay about the things not being perfect. You know, we all just kind of, there are days where we wing it. There are days we've gotten to work and we've realised we're wearing two different shoes. I've gotten to work and it would be 10 o'clock and I've realised I didn't order my kids lunch. Um, 
I have multiple alarms set to remind me to go pick my kids up. You know, things like that I think are far more important for women to hear, particularly if they're early in their careers or early in parenthood. Um, you know, a baby can be wanted like it's all you've ever thought about and you still get six months into pregnancy and thinking, crap, I don't want to do this anymore. That's okay. You know, you can have moments where everything's too hard and you want to get in the car and just leave everyone behind. That's also okay. I think these are the conversations we need to be having quite openly about, you know, it doesn't mean we don't love who we are or what we're doing or our children any less. It just means some days life's hard and that's okay. It is that perception that we have to have it all together yeah. and we have to have the job and the kids need to look perfect and all yeah. of this and it's not sustainable. Yeah, no. And the pressures of the – and this isn't specifically for women, this is it, families. The pressures to be everything to everyone is is getting a little bit ridiculous, you know, and I know I'm not blaming schools here. I know they're doing their best and they're trying to engage children, but some of the requests and the things that happen, just it's just one thing too many. I We had crazy hair day the other day. I left my kids to do their own. I'm like, what's crazier than a nine and a six-year-old doing their own hair? That job done. Tick. As a parent, you walk away like I walked into work, realized what it was and just thought to myself, I have failed. And I think, you know, those conversations go a long way in helping myself and other parents and women feel better. And also I applaud a lot of women who make a difficult decision that children aren't for them. As a society, we need to ease up on people. Like that's, you know, it, one of the hardest things. It doesn't matter how open and, and different the world is now. Uh, women are still critiqued about choosing a career over their family or acknowledging that they might not be maternal. Like I think that's a huge call and I think women who make those calls happily should be celebrated. Just because you can doesn't mean you have to. Just those conversations where particularly young girls know that there are options for them. It's not just, you know, we're not an industrial and consumer-driven community anymore. So It's quite interesting and I think what stuck in my head is I had advice when I was younger was that I was told that my role in life was to make my husband happy. Yeah. And I think of that advice now and I'm like, that is the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Yep. That how is it my responsibility yep. to make my husband happy? Yep. And I don't. His happiness is is his own. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's funny. Um, Paige and I were having these discussions today about how you don't realize one simple sentence can change a person's perception and it can change the course of their life. You know, and as a parent, that terrifies me. Some of the things that come out of my mouth, like. Yeah, and to think that, you know, one of those messages is going to stick and knowing my luck, it'll be the wrong one. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah, it's a tough gig and I think we just need to, like I said, cut the crap. That's the simplest way, start having honest conversations with people and that's about everything. I think it would go a long way with mental health stigma if we all just kind of admitted a little bit more about how we're not travelling well. doesn't mean we need a solution, doesn't mean we need you need to hear about it, it just an acknowledgement that you know it's not all rose colored glasses rosy rainbows and sunshines whatever the wonderful saying is yeah Yeah. um you know and yeah i have sometimes a bit of a cynical view but i think it's also quite honest and open and raw so works for me and i appreciate that and i appreciate you talking to me because we've had like a couple of chats and why i wanted to talk to you was because i very much enjoy it and that you cut the crap and you speak the truth and I really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Sometimes it gets me in trouble. Like I, I'll be looking around the room and realise uh, I've said something. It's like everyone's kind of looking very uh, 
stunned. It's like, okay, cool. Maybe I went one step too far. I'll be over here back in my box. So, yeah. I enjoy it. So that <laughs> makes for a fun day. Absolutely. <laughs> but no, thank you. Thank you. And that was our second episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week, the same time, the same place with our next installment. We have some brilliant episodes coming up. So keep a look out on our socials for sneak peeks. You'll hear from us soon.